hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. I'm Tom Hammond, co-founder of UserWise and your host today. Um, today, I am really excited to get to talk to the one and only Matt Hood. Um, <laughs> uh, Matt, before we dive into uh, everything, I always like to start with, you know, what's your journey? Like, how'd you end up in games and how'd you end up where you're at today? Yeah, Tom, first of all, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here. Really enjoy the podcast. So yeah, really honored to be here. Um, yeah, my background's, um, I'm told, kind of slightly more interesting or different one from a lot of people, as I originally started in recruitment HR, um, rather than traditional background. Uh, my first games company was about nine years ago, where I joined Natural Motions uh, HR team uh, prior to the Zynga acquisition and was helping as we staff teams uh, like games like Clumsy Ninja back in the day, which was a <laughs> really cool but interesting uh, uh, entry into to free-to-play, which is still kind of quite infancy at that level. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we were, I was there when the Zynga acquisition happened and uh, they came in obviously with a lot of expertise and knowledge, especially around product management. And um, Natural Motion really wanted to, to learn from this and, invest in its own product management um, teams. So I was in charge and responsible for us hiring a lot of product managers. And uh, it was this kind of at this point, I really asked myself like, hey, do I want to be like hiring the people or do you want to be doing the work itself? Like I was just so in love with what they were doing and the saying, and that really kind of got me excited. Had to fast forward a few years and, um, and move to a different country where I joined Wuga to, to lead the talent acquisition team. And um, thanks to really a lot of support uh, from a couple of people like the head of games, the VP of product and one of the product leads, I got my, my opportunity to move into the game side as a producer for, for Jelly Splash, one of the live games at the time. And um, since then, I've just been given a lot of opportunities to work on great games like June's Journey as a um, senior product manager working on new features and live ops. Um, Fishing Clash for 10 Square Games, leading the team there. And most recently, I joined Carry First as a game lead to kick off a new game as we build and invest in our games function there. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so you might be the first like recruiter that we've had on the show. So I, I know we've got a lot of stuff to kind of dive into, but I'm curious, like, what are maybe let's like two or three lessons you've learned, you know, through your time doing recruitment, like a lot of people right now are really struggling to find people to join their team. So like, you know, if you had to say, Hey, here are two or three things that like I would focus on, or I would do to try to find the right person. Like, what would you say? Yeah. I mean, so it's a really tough market because there's um, just so much exciting stuff happening right now and, and everyone fighting and viring for people for their very exciting project or initiative. Um, I think, you know, the first thing that always came down to is the, the outreach, how you contact people. If it's like a really generic message, no one's going to buy into it because you ask anyone and they'll say they get a hundred messages a week. So just getting that kind of foot in the door through either taking some actual real time to, to send a message or finding a way to connect with people um, will just really help you get that message across so like it really made the difference even in me joining carry first is having conversations and learning more about the vision of the the company is what really got me excited and um to take the leap to join 
Mm. Um, the second is like the experience. People um, are in such a rush to get people through the process that, and sometimes when hiring so many people that they're not kind of thinking enough about what is the candidate going through in the process? Do they feel engaged? Do they feel listened to? Are they being treated well? Because how you're treated in the process really will inform your decision when you want to make a decision on joining or not joining a company. And it's crazy how many people don't think enough about this, think from the perspective of the, the people they're trying to hire. And um, yeah, again, I think it's about having a good vision strategy for your company, getting you know people excited about not just the, the individual thing they're contributing to, but the kind of bigger, bigger vision. Again, I've been very lucky with like Wuga has always um, worked hard on having that vision on selling people. And um, I feel the same for Carrie First in, in what this is and what I'm joining. Yeah. Um, okay. A few questions. Um, you talk about vision. Um, I know a lot of people may not have the ability to set the vision at the high level. Like, let's say I'm at a, a larger company like a Zynga or Scopely or wherever, but, you know, maybe I'm the product manager over the game or a game lead, or maybe even like the head of studio, like, can I have some level of vision that I can kind of help set and define and use that? Or is it really about that larger company buy-in that I maybe have less control over? I think it's both, you know, um, vision to strategy really rolls from the, the top to the bottom, but on a game level, you know, you always want a strong vision and strategy that the team's kind of working towards and against. You know, do you want to, um, you know, be the household name for this game might be a vision and then your strategy, what's the next step in achieving this? And so when you're you know, recruiting, even having this um, clear in larger organizations, I think is, is really important. Why are people joining your game team that might be quite larger? Mm -hmm. What is the, the bigger picture? Um, on a level of, you know, the game lead for the project, you still want to stay very aligned with what the, um, company wants to do and wants to achieve? Do they have initiatives or areas that they want to invest in and grow and believe in? Um, you know, in the past, that's often been things like live ops or personalization. How can the strategy and vision of your product not only enhance the game itself, but take the company to a next level? So, you know, it's important to have really strong dialogue up and above um, when it comes to visions and strategies and, you know, constantly reinforce them. That's the hardest thing as well. People forget and you really have to reinforce <laughs> by, you know, build it into what you're talking about. And um, it makes a difference because people feel excited to be part of it. You know, on, on Fishing Clash, we really worked hard to, to set a vision and keep reinforcing it, keep explaining how people were playing a part into it, feel more than just a, an individual in the team, but a, a real part of it, a real contributor, a real driver. And um, I think it makes a big, a big difference for, for buy-in, especially in large teams where it's harder to feel, um, harder to feel special, I guess, even though everyone's always <laughs> special, but it, it feels harder when there's 80 other people around you, right? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so I was talking to a buddy of mine um, and for a while he started as an artist um, and then he moved into art recruiting. Um, and he did that for a number of years at like Riot and Blizzard and, and some other more AAA type style <laughs> games and stuff. Um, but he told me that his secret 
was that he had this really big spreadsheet and he would identify every like art candidate that like he wanted to be able to recruit. And he would actually have the projects that they were working on as well as like when those, you know, games were going live or whatnot. And he had like a contact date. And so he would always try to hit people like maybe a month or two before this big, you know, triple A game was going to be released or whatnot, because they're usually in crunch. And if they're going to make a change, like they probably want to see the project through, but that's maybe a good like reset. Like, do I still want to be here for another, you know, push to the product or do I want to like maybe consider something else? Um, does that actually work outside of these like AAA games? Like if I, you know, saw an artist on June's journey or something like that, I mean, you're kind of forever running that game. Like, does that still work in today's world or is there a different model that's maybe a little bit better? I mean, um, yeah, I think it still just work, right? Like, you know, back in my recruitment days, we'd kind of call it talent pooling. Um, and, you know, similar to a lot of uh, graphs of X, Y access, you know, we, we have them a lot in games, engagement, monetization, acquisition. People kind of move around these graphs of kind of when they're more susceptible to, to want to change or um, want to point. And um, there's actually some very clever software as well that, you know, looks at uh, <laughs> different points to, to try and help you as well. You know, when you see people updating their LinkedIn, they're probably more likely to consider a change as well. Mm. Um, but in the life cycle of games, no, I, I still believe that there are points and um, times where people do want changes. There are people that really only want to work on new games. There are people that are super passionate about live games. Um, but certain roles also find over time that they struggle with um, enough variety in their role or enough challenges. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think art and, and live games, this is a particularly uh, an area where Leaders have to put a lot of resource to keep them engaged, give um, challenging work because it can be <laughs> quite difficult to keep motivated making the same type of art nonstop. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, okay, final question. Um, you talked about in today's world, connecting with the person, you know, what would be the best way to do that? Would it, seems like maybe a you know, LinkedIn message or an email maybe isn't the right way to do that since they're probably getting a hundred of those per week. Like, is it better to connect with somebody that's maybe close to them and ask for a warm intro or? Yeah. I mean, you know, the world's changed a lot since uh, uh, COVID hit as well. Like um, I think a lot of people pre COVID would, would be speaking highly about, you know, the in-face events and how, how much they helped build kind of talent pools out and connections and points and, you know, I, I know quite a few recruiters that it was their main kind of um, USP, their, their kind of strong in-person presence. And COVID's made that a lot more difficult. Um, but I think more and more people are finding and looking for ways to connect and more desire to connect. Um, so, of course, referrals and intros are pretty much the first thing and first hope most companies go to in finding people. Early companies, obviously, have high higher kind of referral numbers um there are weaknesses though in this as well like i think you know when you think a lot about diversity referrals can sometimes not lead to as much diversity in the teams as you like from both experience and um ethnicity and other points so to keep that up you have to be kind of proactive um linkedin messaging and email 
is still super effective. You know, people get a lot of messages, but I think it makes people feel very good. Like, <laughs> you know, they feel in demand. And then if you can do something special within that, it, it helps. Um, but yeah, but look, at, look for groups, look for intros, look for well-connected people you know, like yourself that might be able to introduce you to people. Um, because yeah, I think that that really always helps get your, your foot in the door and help kind of share that, that vision image of what you're working on. That's great. I love it. Okay. So let's talk about live ops. Um, yeah. so Matt define live ops. What is it? Cool. Start, start with an easy one, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, at a basic level, right? Live, live operations is your game is, um, out. It is catering to two people, um, in normally a global perspective. Um, though obviously soft launch and tech launch are still places people experiment and do more live ops, but you start kind of shifting and putting a lot more effort into keeping your game interesting, exciting, um, on a daily basis. You know, I, I know in some of your podcasts, you've mentioned this as well, how, how live ops helps keep variety and a reason to keep coming back each day. Um, they kind of desire to see something new or things different. And that's a part of it. Um, but live ops also is a, a big performance driver by giving new ways, new demands, new ways to challenge players that encourages them to do more, faster, quicker, or harder. Um, and results in some really cool stuff. Cool. So why is live ops important then? Like, can't I just make an awesome game and it's going to just work and, and do really well? Actually, I mean, it can. There, there are games <laughs> that actually do super low amount of live ops. You know, they just do kind of re like relative content drops. Um, so there are games that do that. But I would never recommend that because I think they are games that often can feel quite static, unchanging, or have points where you feel like not much is going on in the game. And that reduces your desire to go back points. Mm. But it's kind of a, um, a symbiotic relation. Both, both have to exist. Um, one of the reasons we started talking is because you, uh, you, you did a post on uh, LinkedIn about well, if LiveOps is driving so much performance, why does it come out so late? But you or often comes out quite late in development cycles. But a big part of it is you need a very strong core game that is and can translate into performance. And then LiveOps is how you kind of dial that up to 10, how you really can um, use a very strong foundation, an excellent game, and find ways to excite and challenge your players in new ways um, or give them things that they they want in easier ways sometimes via sales that translates into performance and um, sometimes excitingly high spikes if you're if you're doing it well and cool yeah so you know i believe that the metric that i heard or saw the last time was like live ops accounts for 50 to 60 percent of a game's revenue on average sometimes even upwards of 80 percent um but again it is kind of delayed when they actually start to look at live ops in, in mini games now some don't like diablo immortal or call of duty mobile like when they came out on day one they actually had pretty decent live ops and then they you know continue to add and increase that um, when should, you know, when you're look, working on a new game, 
when should you be thinking about live ops or how you might live ops this game? Like maybe it's not too early because you do need to find that core metric that actually works, that core loop. But it seems like waiting until after you're live, you might have already kind of missed the the boat there. So like when is the right time? And when it comes to thinking about it, thinking happens super early. Like when you're kind of deciding your your core loop and design, you still have to have ideas around um you know, is the game flexible enough to, to support live ops? Um, can we find ways of asking the player to do more in interesting ways? Um, you know, even in puzzle games, how can we encourage players to play more levels, um, drive performance via that way? Um, but as to, you know, execution, it often comes a bit later because, you know, in soft launch, you want to prove that your game actually can hold up on its own? Is it a, a solid performance and basis that we can build live ops on top? June's Journey actually is a, is a game that launched with almost no live ops. We had, um, at the time, one basic sales system that we kind of then adjusted to turn into a, a regular cadence. And, you know, you can see in these early metrics where, where this sale came in because it led to, <laughs> to huge spikes. Um, and then we kind of built live ops on top of it. One of the other things to consider is um, in the market right now as well is there there is more urgency in getting your game out earlier, um, getting player data, getting player feedback. And so delaying it to be more feature complete comes with risks and mm. risks that smaller companies, not like Activision, uh, <laughs> struggle, struggle to kind of balance out a bit as well. So yeah. To, to round up, you know, thinking about it comes super early, but as to planning when it comes in and how much you need it at what point, um, you have to look at your game and have a plan. Don't kind of think about it later. Okay. Here, here's a question. What does it actually mean to code or develop my game or a feature in a way that that can be, let's say, live ops? Yeah, I think this is... Um, super exciting part of like feature development actually it's it's something i really love doing in june's journey is thinking about the kind of future of um features and and also thinking about how you're setting them up for kind of experimentation endpoints you know we made um a lot of um, a lot of different features and from an earlier stage we'd always brainstorm like how do these features stay fresh what powers or control are we going to give to live ops to use these features um, and, you know, what, what is that going to unlock in the future? You know, a random but quite small scope example is we, we made a kind of announcement system. And, you know, we, on a basic level, we just needed to get kind of news out. But we also saw the opportunity to make it quite versatile to run different live ops uh, events or campaigns via it. And so, you know, we, we got with live ops very early brainstormed the type of use cases that they might want to use or experiment with later on, and then kind of um, looked at how we can make the feature more flexible to support it, different graphics, different layouts, or what's often the way is different config values and flexible <laughs> config values. I, I know configs aren't really the most like sexy thing to talk about, but they're like the real power of making things more versatile and experimental if you, if you make them in ways where configs can be turned around, tweaked, and you can play with stuff and get excited about it. What is a con what is a config? Like what does that entail or what does that mean? Oh gosh, now I'm uh, <laughs> I'm not a sorry to all my deaf friends out of there. 
Um, in a nutshell, it, it's short for a configuration. Um, with features and games, um, often you are hard coding or hopefully not hard coding values into two features. You know, a specific example would be, you know, you've got a pop-up and how long before this pop-up shows again. And, you know, in an ideal world, you would have a, a value, a configurable value that you can change and tweak this. Do you want it to be one hour? Do you want it to be 24 hours? So configs are um, different values and codes where you expose them so people can change or tweak them, which then allows for like A-B testing and points and gives control to the team to try different things. Um, rewards are a good example of something that is normally a config. You know, are you going to give a um, booster or are you going to give hard currency? And you would change this for a configurable value. Gotcha. Okay, so to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly. Um, let's say, for example, that um, that we've just made League of Legends, uh, cool. a brand new game. And uh, the difference would be if we had no configs, when we make the, the game mode for League of Legends, everything would be hard-coded into the client. So the minions would spawn every 30 seconds and the things in the jungle would spawn at this rate, minions would have this health and this damage, turrets would have this health, this damage, everything would just be like set in there. There's nothing that I can change. Now, if I instead set that in a configuration, configuration would probably be a, a JSON file that would contain what is the minion spawn duration in milliseconds or seconds or whatever what is the minion health the minion damage the you know all the things that you might ever want to change you don't necessarily need to change them but all the things that you'd want to change would be set in there and this config file basically powers what's in the game so in the sense of let's say live ops maybe i decide that i want to do a uh, ultra minion event so for this new game mode, maybe I have a different version of that config where the minion spawn rate is changed a little bit, but their health is changed to be 300% more and their damage is set to be 1000% more or you know something like that. Um, and those will go down and it will fundamentally change the way that game is played. Did I kind of get that all right? Absolutely. I think you, you did a, a, a better job of me explaining it. And, uh, and there are also a lot of very good uh, tools on the market to make this easier. Uh, I think you'd know about that too. <laughs> UserWise, obviously, being a, a company that's trying to make this, uh, this interaction and this, this type of changes uh, easier for companies that don't have their own kind of tooling and ways of doing it. Yeah, we try, but you know, it goes a lot deeper than that because you might want to segment it or A/B test it or try different versions or change about anything. But um, to your, I guess to go a little bit further, um, at what point when I'm making this game, do I want to have this sort of config drive thing? Because it's probably faster for me to hard code it in the short term for like the League of Legends. But in the long term, even when I'm getting that game out there in soft launch, it might be better for me to be able to be able to rapidly change or A-B test different versions of like minion hit points or damage or, you know, uh, maybe a whole slew of things to figure out like what is the optimal version of, of the game. 
Um, and to go back and have to do all those changes in the client code constantly and push out updates, it would just, you know, you start to fall way, way, way behind. Um, but there's probably that balancing act in there. So like, does it make sense even when you're coding that more basic game to have everything at least kind of config driven, even if they're maybe not super accessible or should you start over here and translate that once you've like hit maybe a few metrics? Yeah, I would say probably not everything as also there's a lot of things that you'll just then never use. And, and you know, <laughs> it also requires like more extensive documentation. Configs come with the need uh, for a more extensive documentation as well. Um, but you definitely want to, to run through and understand the both the priorities of which things you need access to on a, you know, very basic level. Um, especially if you're in soft launch, are you noticing problems that may relate back to configs? You may see, for instance, balancing, balancing values, incomes or outcomes are um, performing dangerously and configs allow you to react kind of immediately to this on top of both testing, but also reacting and resolving issues. Um, so you first need to understand which configs are integral to, to the running of the game and what their risk level is so that you can have them uh, at your disposal to both kind of use as well as tests to optimize for. Mm. Um, and then it's also about, you know, working with, working with your live ops team if you, if you have them already around which ones unlock um, kind of potential for both testing, proving concepts, um, allowing for, I think kind of a, an interesting one we, we had and we played occasionally with on June's journey was actually the energy recharge, recharge time. Mm. On a basic level, it's something we, we needed to uh, optimize in soft launch. And in later time, we, we used for kind of mini events, right? We upped the recharge time, um, communicated this to players and explained, hey, live up event, quicker recharge time, come on, play, play more. So, you know, we need it as a core level, but it served a secondary purpose of allowing us to turn into a, a mini kind of live ops. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, whenever I'm talking to people about this, I always kind of say, it's best, at least at, at some phase, like once you're ready to do live ops, to work with your developer and your live ops person to say like, okay, what are the things that I might ever want to change in a game mode of League of Legends so that I can really set that up and code it the one time, and then I can pass it off to my live ops team who can now come up with, you know, interesting live ops events that maybe never existed before. I can come up with game modes in League of Legends that have literally never been around before, like that minion one has never been around. But a common one that has would be uh, Earth or Ultra Rapid Fire. I changed the cooldown reduction of skills to 90% and the mana cost to zero. Well, that's you know pretty common, but as long as I have those levers that I can change in those config files or you know via dropdown that generates the config or whatever, um, you can do those things. Um, so there's a lot of cool stuff that you can do, but I think it's that matter of like, when, <laughs> when and why do we, you know, dig into those things? Um, so let's talk about new games a little bit. Like yeah. what are some indicators that maybe this game is showing good metrics and like, we're looking like we should spend a little bit more time on the live op stuff or what are some indicators that, Hey, maybe this game should be killed and we should move on to something else. Sure. Um, obviously, it's always hard to, to kill a game and also know, know when it's doing kind of well or not. Um, you know, I, I, I really believe in doing a lot of your homework at a really early stage, um, you know, trying to collect as much data 
um, as you can from various sources and partners where possible and help kind of build the, the kind of expected business case. Um, you know, try and lay out, for instance, the, the benchmarks of retention. Um, look at competitors or similar games and what type of um, Arpdow or, you know, Appani kind of uses more like revenue per download type numbers um, you might expect. And then even do kind of early tests for um, artwork to try and understand what type of UA numbers you might see on CPI, uh, CVR. And help already um, have kind of an early scenario basis for um, what you might expect or hope to see mm. in soft launch. You know, we know or seen that we believe we'll get UA numbers that calculate as around this for CPI. Um, we've built the game and have deconstructed the ARPDAO into the different systems. So we, we hope and expect this type of number. And based on retention benchmarks, we, we expect to sit here. And that will hopefully also mean you, you have kind of an LTV target also. Mm. Once you get into two soft launch, more than tech launch, you know, you can then start comparing against your numbers um, and start seeing how close, far away, maybe you're over on one under another and start understanding and discussing. Is it something we can actually improve, optimize? Or um, you know, do we have a feature in our, our back pocket or our backlog that we plan to release that would, would improve this metric anyway? Or do we just not believe that there is a, enough uh, opportunity to, to make the difference to get this ready for, for global launch? And it's always, it's always hard. You know, your teams get very connected to, to the games and... Um, you always kind of want to believe it's, it's part of working on something, right? It's because you believe in it and you want to and deliver it, but you have to really have um, honest conversation and get honest feedback from others around, you know, are you still um, talking in practical senses? Do they agree with your hypothesis, your um, plans, and if it will have the impact you, you want. Um, mm. So yeah, early scenarios um, that you can then compare once you start getting data and then deconstruct um, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So thinking about new games a little bit, I have kind of come to believe that we're at the point where, and maybe we're not completely there, but I would say just about everyone in the world that's a gamer probably already has some game or games that they're already playing. Um, so it's not like maybe in the early days of mobile where people that had never had access to like a console or a PC, you know, came in and like, they didn't have a game before. And now they kind of picked one up. It seems like just about everyone kind of has a game at some level. So we're no longer competing against kind of nothing that easy mode. Uh, it's kind of like, I've got to make a game that is so much better than what you're currently playing that, you have that, you know, the 10x factor that it's worth the pain of abandoning all of your time, all of your money, all of your learning and knowledge and experience to come in and play this new game, right? So it's, it's a much higher bar. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what you think. And I think that probably goes into a little bit of some of the UA challenges that we've had lately too. Um, but I'm curious what you think about this idea that uh, I, I've talked to a few people before about, um, which is 
can you identify who your, let's say, target audience is and identify, hey, what are the games that these people are currently playing that we think we can make a, you know, a better version of or, or whatnot? Um, and then does it make sense to actually go and find, let's say, top players in top guilds on those games or players that have been playing that game for three years or whatever and you know get 20 or 50 of them onto the phone and ask them things like what are the problems that you had what are the things that you wish you had what are the things that you love about this game you know if i had a magic wand and i could give you anything in the world like what would you want most now, you know, some of those things might just be, I want more coins or whatever, and you might not be able to grant that, but you've kind of got to read between the lines and push them a little bit. But like, do you think that doing those types of conversations and bringing that knowledge back could help you build that, you know, better version of the game that actually might appeal to these people that are currently, you know, deep, deeply committed to this game, but might be able to come to yours if you really solve these problems for them? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I... I kind of want to call out like the, the game that keeps blowing my mind um, in so many ways, which is like Royal Match. Like they went into like the heaviest like uh, like genre, and they've kind of just smashed it by just doing everything better. Like after playing Royal Matches like Match Free, I just don't know if I could ever go back and play Candy Crush. Like it's it's just I, so polished. I literally can't. It Candy Crush yeah. sucks. It's like I can't like so no, no offense to Candy Crush. It's like slow, and I can't double click the stuff to just blow it. I've got to like it's just. Ugh. And uh, yeah, so this this game is like um, really just just so amazing to me that they just said, "Hey, we're just gonna make this the best absolute game and just make it so that if you go back, it's it it, it feels its age." I mean, Candy Crush isn't isn't a young game now, but I think replicating that is. Um, really really difficult i mean that team has just so much expertise that they've applied to this and that isn't something a lot of um, companies can can replicate so you know the companies that are looking at new games that have kind of different expertise i think absolutely like i said doing homework early is definitely something we're we're heavily investing in in carry first um failing fast but also building confidence in what we're trying to make and why and that involves not just looking at competitors and data, but definitely the the players themselves. What um, you know, who they who they are, the demographics, um, their interests, and what's connecting to them. Um, you know, you mentioned everyone's. A lot of people are gamers now. Obviously, they don't consider themselves gamers. A lot of people that play mm -hmm. Candy Crush would never call themselves a gamer. Fishing Clash's players never call themselves gamers. It was even though they played more than I play my PlayStation. <laughs> Um, you know, and we really, on both June's journey and Fishing Clash, we went to great lengths to understand our players, to build out personas, understanding which features uh, are working with or where gaps are that we can fill to, to keep them engaged or grow other audience levels. And so doing that for new games is, is equally important in understanding where do they not feel serviced, where are they maybe getting frustrated in their current games, and offering them experiences that, um, you know, can compete, can find a new niche, um, excite them again, maybe bring back excitement to something they've been doing for a long time. Um, and the more you can speak to them, the better. The other example is um, I would use is, uh, I wasn't the one that, that did this, but a, a team and uh, a number of the people that were the founding team for June's journey as they went into the next project, spent a lot of time interviewing um, 
some of the competitors, players that they were kind of thinking about and looking at. And they pulled a number of um, really amazing insights that they tried to factor into the design of, of a new game. And um, so I learned a lot from watching them and, and doing this and seeing how, how powerful that was. Mm, interesting. Do you think that um, it makes cause a lot of games like if I really think about retention and why I engage in games, I think a lot of it, and people don't really talk about this, is that psychological high. So we'll talk about Royal Match first. That yep. moment when you feel like you've been clever enough, you've been able to manipulate the stuff around so that you have the two big things to like explode the entire thing and win the level. It just feels so good. Like you feel smart, you feel talented and man, it just feels amazing. Um, now I think if I look at Royal match versus candy crush Royal match gives you so much more of these moments where you can like have big things come together and like blow up the whole board and do these really big moves you get more of this like psychological release than I ever do when I play Candy Crush. Um, I think about other games like League of Legends. Um, I remember I, well, I played a lot of League of Legends. Quit. And then I uh, played a little like Wild Rift. And I was like playing Wild Rift. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to buy like a little trolley champion and have some fun. So I bought Teemo. And oh gosh, real, real trolley. Man. Really trolley. I tell you what i went 18 and 3 that first game that i had timo and like probably 10 of those kills were from like mushrooms that were just like hidden throughout the like the map and stuff um so super trolley um but i got done with the game i was mvp i had like the perfect s score rating like it felt so good and i tell you what i played like 25 more games of timo and i just got trounced all of those games, like just because Timo really sucks. Right. Um, but I was like chasing that like high moment that I wanted to have again. Um, Cause I, I think like once you truly experience like, well, that is the thing you have this intrinsic motivation to like experience that again. Um, does it make sense to look at competitors and try to understand like, what is that psychological high moment that players get and try to replicate or even maybe improve upon that. So like in the case of, Royal match, I imagine they looked at it and they said, what is like the height uh, moment of awesomeness and candy crush? And it's these big explosions together and say, well, let's figure out how to do level design while giving them more of these big moments. So they get more of that high, that rush. I mean, definitely. I mean, the high, the highs and gameplay um, are what, you know, everyone kind of aims for. And in prototyping, when you're prototyping, you're like, can you, can you replicate highs? Can you get people excited? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Royal Match does a really great job of um, balancing four kind of crazy highs. You know, the, <laughs> the number of free boosters and on time as it gives you is because it wants it to be kind of like bombastic excitement. Yeah. But even if when you think back at like early Candy Crush, like, and I, I still kind of like quote this all the time, like, I think so much about like delicious, like this, that <laughs> was like a high for me, like that. I loved hearing that and like hunting for it. And, um, you know, gameplays and, and points should should definitely get that and so when i'm you know talking about new features or new gameplay points i'm like where is our delicious type thing like and i think looking at um, games looking at competitors but also looking at your own gameplay and understanding what's, what's kind of creating that and can you lean more into it 
either through effects, through gameplay, through emotional connection, um, is really important. And this is like comes down to good, like I said, VFX UI is a really great way of achieving this. Um, we did that on June's journey, like you get to an end of the level and the the way the bar kind of like pings, it, you know, was a great feeling as well. That's great. Can you replicate or improve or give more of those types of moments with live ops or is are those psychological moments really more about the core game loop? I think you can definitely do it with, with live ops as well. Um, you know, often a number of live ops games will, um, first of all, you can have live ops modes. There are some games where they'll just be like, hey, give more bombs and more bombs. And <laughs> you just have like bombastic levels or things that are like transversing and it, it feels exciting and it feels points. Yeah. In those cases, you want to do it in limited time because you don't want to overload players with with that feeling but as a as a difference sometimes it can feel just really exciting to like lean into it and point to it um but live ops also give kind of typically different kind of i would say psychological um feedback positive feelings normally it's doing something um more you know hey play more levels quicker to get this high but the feeling of achieving that within a time limit feels feels great not to keep referencing puzzle, but kind of street modes, <laughs> you know, when you do five levels and you complete them in a row and you get that kind of high that can come in a single session. Um, so I think they provide highs and they provide exciting feelings separate to progression, which tends to be a bit slower. But live ops is, um, you know, there's gameplay, which is moment to moment. Live ops often works in either session today, typically in these kind of highs. Mm. Um, if I can lean into, you know, uh, one of the big features I worked in on June's journey was uh, a feature called memoirs, which is a form of collections. And when we looked at, at this game uh, mode or sorry, this live ops events, when designing it, because it runs for a, a longer period of time, around two months, you know, we're even designing that is like when a player is getting the highs, like where is the good feeling? What feels exciting? How can just in the moment it feel really rewarding? And you have to, we're making games. We have to constantly be thinking about how is even systems, even if they're very UI heavy systems, giving these positive feelings and how can it replicate in the design? Mm. That's great. So I was actually going to ask something very similar to this, but on, on that train, um, since we're running a little bit low on time here, one kind oh, of last subject, I know, right? Um, one kind of last subject that I have is, um, for people that have been working on a, a live game for a long time, I know it can sometimes start to feel a little stale or staticky, and it's sometimes maybe hard to come up with like new feature or live ops or, or whatever, like ideas of what to do. Um, can you walk me through like, how did you guys come up with memoirs? Like what was that process through like thinking about it? How did it come about? How did you guys actually go through the design process and ultimately like release it? Like, Sure. I mean, it, it um, definitely wasn't our, our quickest feature, but it also wasn't our, our longest feature. Um, you know, starting from the, the, the very beginning, we knew that we wanted to make a, a collection-based feature. We wanted a longer-term event that ran because we had a lot of kind of shorter events, you know, one day, weeks, and we wanted something longer that kept players engaged for a longer period of time. And we've seen, uh, we saw success you know, even in Slotomania of uh, their collection system, which uh, we were a play ticket company at this point. And um, 
I, I really like uh, Stardomania's approach to collections. I think it, they do a lot mm. of really great highs there as well. Um, so we, we had this as kind of a, a rough foundation of, hey, you know, there will be a collection aspect with rewards. And we, we assumed we'd probably take a few of the design aspects there. But like the real challenge was, um, okay, but how do we make this part of Gene's journey, right? How do we make this um, in a game where there is a very defined world? It is 1920s, you are a detective on an island. Um, and that was always a core part of the game, like staying true to this, this aspect of it. So how could this feature tie into that and enrich the experience, but um, not derail it? So we brainstormed lots of different ideas. Like there was some really crazy stuff that we did with the, the narrative lead, with the art lead, the, the feature team itself on what are different ways that we can make this feel kind of exciting and different. And, um, you know, if we kind of play with them, we, we put them into kind of practice of does this work? Does this stay interesting in two years? And a lot of really cool ideas don't, didn't stay interesting in two years. They felt kind of really repetitive. Um, but once we kind of like understood kind of a, a theme, something that enriched it, which was memoirs, which is June's history or lessons, something we knew from our understanding of our players as well. We looked at the player personas, what systems they connected with, which part of the characters or systems um, we saw really high synergy with. And we made sure the system was was catered best um, based on these player personas as well. Then once we, we had this, um, this concept and idea, as always, we went kind of full into to development. We, we planned out the systems, we planned out um, and looked at how it connected to performance. How did it translate to performance? What's the experience there? You know, which parts push engagement, which parts push monetization and um, <laughs> rolled into development. But it was always designed as a live, uh, a live ops friendly system as well. You know, when we thought about when it launched, we always thought about okay, what is the life cycle of a of a um, memoir collection? Like I said, it ran about two months, and so we'd think heavily about um, you know what will live ops be during doing during this time to also keep it exciting on top of the system doing that. What controls or abilities will live ops have? to create these moments of excitement and interest in the system, triggers, days, or in weeks. And we brainstormed this a lot early, understood which configs we needed to, to do that, and also built kind of backlog of new features we might introduce afterwards, after the MVP's out, to give live ability to, to keep it exciting. I think to answer your question, I, I feel like I derailed maybe yeah. a little bit. But. No, that, that's amazing, I love it. Um, <laughs> Cool. Well, Matt, uh, because we are on the Master Retention Podcast, I always like to ask our unofficial question, which is, you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years to increase retention? Like, how do you keep your players coming back day after day and ideally, you know, year after year? Yeah, I, we talked a lot about um, gameplay recently, like a moment ago, but um, I think a big part of what keeps players coming back is this, this feeling of progression. And whatever that connects to your game, you know, in Tune's Journey is a story, in Fishing Clash was new challenges, in Saga Maps it's new levels. Because I think more and more in people's day-to-day -day lives, they aren't feeling a sense of progression. They sometimes feel stuck in a rut and gaming is offering this, this ability to feel like you're, you're making progress in something and doing this. So ensuring that your um, progression stays true to the game is still connecting to these motivations that it's developing with either like I said, new exciting stories or 
new challenges in your saga map uh, will will always be the most important thing for, for me of keeping them engaged, keeping them excited to come back um, and keeping it a core cool part of their their lives, right? If you want your game to, to feel a part of their life and that they're excited to get home and play it. That's great. I love it. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Um, if people do have any questions about you or your episode or live ops or carry first or, or anything like that, is there a good way for them to get in contact with you? Yeah. I mean, LinkedIn's def- definitely the best. I'm always happy to, to connect, to talk, to, to chat. Um, I saw today I, I can chat too much maybe, but uh, I'm passionate about it. Um, so yeah, please connect me on LinkedIn and love to meet more people, meet more professionals and talk more games. But thanks for having me, Tom. It's been great. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Matt. Ciao.